I think some of this patriotic stuff is overblown and how can you tell if a person in that moment's being patriotic just by their body language. Well, that's why you wear the flag pin, because then no one ever has to wonder if you're patriotic. Yeah, then but you don't actually have to act patriotic because you're wearing the pin. It's like you don't have to actually have the ADT home security if you have the sticker on the window, <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> You are listening to the Liquid Flannel Podcast, bringing you perspective from the planes. The Great Plains, the greatest of all the planes. We have the best planes in all the land. <laughs> I'm Chuck Williams. Joining me in Nebraska is Brendan Williams. Brendan, how's it going, man? Tremendous planes. Tremendous planes. Tremendous. 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 And joining us in Arlington, Texas is the great Matthew Hodges. Matt, how's it going? Look, folks, what people don't understand is we've got the biggest planes. We've got the best planes or the most tremendous planes. I love how we have the worst <laughs> Trump voices ever. We it's probably hard. have the worst, but let's it frame it. It seems like it would be easy to do to do the Trump voice, but it's not. I can kind of do a Queen's accent, and that's what I fall back on, but it's bad. I know. We could do it in the, fr- in the reference of Marco Rubio and say... Let's just dispel the notion once and for all that the Midwest doesn't have the greatest planes. We have exactly the best planes. Yeah. So the planes know exactly what they're doing. I do like a Tim Kaine, Donald Trump, where he's like, believe me, believe, believe me. me, the planes, believe me. I'm, got I'm Donald Trump. Believe me. That's like an Ed Wynn almost. Right. <laughs> that was real close to being a Bernie Sanders impression. <laughs> yeah. The planes... <laughs> are the greatest in Nebraska and Arlington, Texas. I will be in Omaha on 420 to celebrate Heath Mellow. Yeah, I'm, go- right. I'm going to that Bernie rally. Oh, uh, yeah. So we're recording this on Monday night, and I'm going on, I think it's Thursday. Yep. Uh, so maybe next episode we could talk about that. I hope uh, some other people were going to make it. There's going to be some cool bands there. And, you know, Bernie Sanders, man, I mean, he brings the show, man. He does sure. bring the show. The, the Is show he bringing the bird, though? That's what I want to know. He's got the, he's, he's got seen... the bird man game. It goes with him, whether yeah. the birds show up or not. Can you so. imagine if Bernie Sanders was like, people need birds. We just need to have, like, thousands of cages of sparrows that just I bring with me on tour. And that's, that's, when, that's when the Bernie Sanders uh, kind of post-campaign rallies just turn into episodes of Portlandia. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah donald trump takes wind of this and brings him out it's like we got the birds and we're gonna make them fly and he shoots a gun and it scares <laughs> them and they just shit everywhere but <laughs> speaking of shows though we've got a great show lined up uh brendan why don't you let us in on uh, a little bit of what we're talking about here <laughs> yeah so you know we got a couple articles to talk about tonight and one of the ones that i wanted to bring up was this article on the nation about some research into demographics in the most recent election and you know what is unifying trump voters and it might surprise you but probably not if you're paying attention <laughs> <laughs> well a lot of people aren't paying attention so maybe it will um and matt what else have we got tonight i want to visit this amazing hot take from brett stevens in the wall street journal about how uh, basically progressive leftism and 
Islamic terrorism are essentially the same thing. I mean, just amazing, amazing piece yeah. of literature. So I, I thought we could just read through that a little bit. He needs to retire on that note, you know, just hang his jersey up. I mean, <laughs> it's just golden. So stay golden, Brett. We're going to cover you <laughs> big time, bigly. <laughs> and uh, we've got that in the high note, all of this and more in the episode. So uh, let's jump right in. Trouble with the world is we're too busy to think about it all like Why is there rubble playing air from the state house walls? Tired of hearing this shit about here it is not here Brendan, you want to jump us into the nation? Brendan, sure. Brendan leads the nation. <laughs> Brendan's leading the nation. I'm leading, leading the nation into reading way too many political articles online. Too many articles that we have have had uh, Confederate flags on the pictures. I'm becoming desensitized to it. Uh, never mind, I already was. I watched Dukes of Hazard. Maybe too much. I had no idea that Trump's name was on the original battle flag of Virginia. So <laughs> yeah, so we're talking about this uh, article on the Nation titled "Fear of Diversity Made People More Likely to Vote Trump," and what they did was they took some survey data, asking these four questions about the rising kind of minority population. And how 40 years in the future, or I guess less now, uh, by 2043, blacks, Latinos, Asians, and other mixed racial and ethnic groups will all together be slightly more than altogether white people. Right, yeah, we'll be a minority majority country. <laughs> Which is point. like, those are a lot of different groups have to band together to still be like, almost. <laughs> Right, And so they asked these four questions. They told them that fact about like, hey, this based on current trends, this is going to happen. What do you feel about this? Will Americans learn from one another and be enriched by cultures? You know, thumbs up or thumbs down. A bigger, more diverse workforce will lead to economic growth. Or there will be too many demands on government services and not enough jobs. And so basically they, they compile all this data together and they find out that, hey, if you don't think good things are going to come from diversity or from, you know, a rising minority population and you think they're just going to leech off the government and steal your jobs, then you're probably going to vote for Trump. <clears throat> it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor or you live in the Northeast or you live in the Southwest, you're voting for Trump if you fear that at some point in the future there will be slightly more brown people all together than white people in America. Right, and they had these great graphs that showed basically the, the aggregate scores for different groups, and they broke them out by education, they broke them out by race, they broke them out by political leaning, and so really the most illustrative one. So remember these, these questions or these statements you were supposed to say, like, I, I feel positively about this or I feel negatively on some kind of uh, numerical score. And what they found was the, the score for Republicans was above, uh, like, a five on the scale. Um, on average, they felt less positive about statements like a more diverse workforce leads to more economic growth and that people can learn from other cultures. 
whereas Democrats were somewhere in the, it was like the three and a half range, and independents were kind of split between the two of those. Um, and then they also showed how voters broke between the 2008 and 2012 elections versus 2016, that in the races with Romney and McCain, it was sort of a flat line. It, it There wasn't a great prediction based on your score on these questions, which way you were going to vote. And then you've got Trump that's this big red inclined line that <clears throat> essentially if you agreed with the these positive statements about you know immigration and multiculturalism and diversity you would be much less inclined to vote for Trump and if you agree if you disagreed with these statements strongly you were much more likely to vote for Trump so right. basically totally just destroying this whole narrative about what the election was really about was mm-hmm economics in right. small towns or whatever yeah. mm-hmm. right. um and just saying it was just it's economic uncertainty that drove people to vote for trump um but you know maybe they called it economic uncertainty but really what it was is brown people right. are stealing all my jobs person of color based economic anxiety you know <laughs> an anxiety that arises from having too many brown people around so we could call it uh like the economics of identity no that doesn't work real well that doesn't roll off the tongue i mean we could call it something like identity politics but i've been led to believe that that's a terrible thing that actually was what lost the democrats the election one thing that i thought was interesting about the article was they had mentioned about nine percent of People that had voted for Obama ended up voting for Trump, and about 11% total that voted for Romney ended up voting for not Trump, with 5% of those being for Hillary Clinton and 6% being for anyone but. Uh But I'm just thinking, how do you just transform 9% of Obama voters into thinking these things about race a favorability of African-Americans as well as immigration and then shooting over that fast to Trump. It's like, I feel like these, these kind of ideas and people have probably been there for a long time. Well, and, but, I think so how'd they vote for Obama? Cause it's know, showing like, the way people switched even with relation to their answers to these questions, which means these are right. You know, these are deeply held beliefs about the value of people of color, basically. And, yeah, how did, how did somebody go from... I can understand why people who voted for Romney, who didn't have strong opinions about, you know, things like diversity and multiculturalism, would switch over to Clinton simply because Trump is bad in a whole bunch of different ways. But I don't right. understand the Obama voters who switched over to Trump. Well, I think you forget that Obama ran on a strong change platform, right? He was running against Hillary Clinton and, you know, McCain. So clearly Trump voters don't love McCain, right? Not a lot of love lost there. (laughs) So he's drawing a completely different audience. And I think a lot of people 
they voted for the change candidate. You know what I mean? They voted for the change candidate when it was Obama. They didn't care if black people normally stress the shit out of them. They're like, I just want change, even if it's scary right. change. Well, you and know? I think there's a lot of people who, if you lean conservative, you know, you maybe you did vote for Obama because you thought he was going to change things. And then you watch Fox News for eight years and, th and then realize like, oh, geez, I, I mean, this guy talked a great game, but it sounds like he's the worst president in the history of ever. Yep. According to Fox. So I guess I better vote for Trump. Obama was also a drain the swamp candidate. He didn't use that phraseology exactly, but, you know, he definitely ran on the idea of the government needs to be more responsive to its people. We need to get these elites out of there. That was a really easy argument to make in 2008 while the financial crisis was still in full swing Fresh. and on yeah. yeah and on the the heels of the Iraq and Afghanistan misadventures i think you're right brendan then they got propagandized against him with no small amount of you know ethnic or racial anxiety Fear. built into all yeah. of that commentary and yep. Yeah, I, th I think I think it's real possible. Maybe those people just got cemented into like the racism. The Democrats focus on identity politics, or is is actually the bigger problem here? Right. If you voted for Obama in the '08 financial crisis, and then a year later you got laid off because your company, you know, made horrible financial decisions, <laughs> right? <laughs> it could be really easy for you to just flip it around and be like, whose fault it really is is all those Mexicans for stealing the jobs sure. or whatever, or for Obama for regulations or whatever to to make up some excuse. Your your average American, I think, didn't see the kind of splashy reforms for the economic crisis that we wanted. I mean, Iceland put all of their bankers in jail. What we did was, you know, we invested in the big three automakers to keep them from going under and got equity back. And it ended up being a good deal, but all people really heard was the government's bailing out these people who made bad bets. And we did similar things, taking big banks into receivership essentially right. to make sure that they didn't cause this, you know, domino, this global domino effect that would have collapsed every economy. Um, those are all good things, but you've got to be kind of a wonk to care about that. You know, right. Iceland right. put their bankers in jail all of our bankers are still doing the same things. And meanwhile, they get Fox News and Hannity blasting them all the time about what a like a wingnut Elizabeth Warren is because she cares about strong financial protections. And, you know, the Democratic right. establishment didn't like Bernie Sanders because he was I mean, he wasn't exactly an anti-capitalist, but he wasn't as much in the pocket of the big established capitalist organizations as Hillary Clinton was, you know? So there's, yeah, there's just not that compelling narrative there. Well, and these two sentences here totally identify with that. I mean, it says in the 2016 election, the traditional democratic advantage among low income people was deeply diminished. Corporations long seen as the enemy for progressives are increasingly seen as allies on issues like immigration and LGBT rights. See, so then it's like, if you're an anti-corporate or a person that wants to be critical and hold corporations accountable, then you're running the risk of, well, all these LGBT people are saying, you monster, Coca-Cola's okay, Pepsi's fine. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, don't hate Hillary for that stuff. You know, Bernie, I don't know what his problem is. Well, 
So, I mean, in those ways, you're kind of fighting the economic fight with corporatism's adoption of being just friendlier thieves. So. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're they're trying to co-opt social justice and and class conscious sort of exactly. imagery and and perspective. You know, and and I think the article also makes a really good point when it talks about how we have a bigger political disparity within classes in this country than we do between the classes. You know, that's been an incredibly successful propaganda device uh, from both sides of the political spectrum, turning people against each other on identity issues instead of looking at why your life actually sucks, which is that, you know, we're basically being siphoned dry by corporations who don't give a shit about you. They want to, they want to automate your job. You know, even the, you know, the neocons are still trying to get their way on trade deals and stuff. And you saw Trump in China completely reversing his perspective on China being a currency manipulator and all this stuff, which, I mean, he's right. But what he got his followers pissed off about was that China is stealing all of our jobs because they, they're they able to do everything much more cheaply because they're manipulating their currency. It's It's the same thing. It's what's the matter with Kansas, right? Where... They use these social issues to drive wedges into the working class, and it works. I mean, it puts Donald Trump in power, yeah. <laughs> who's filling his cabinet with billionaires. Not to like talk about the crazy Pepsi ad or whatever, but it is weird that all these companies keep trying to co-opt that when they're really not winning any fans, it oh, seems no, it like, always because fails. if you're like a radical leftist who's out in the streets protesting, you're not going to be like, oh, Pepsi... Like, finally, I better start supporting Pepsi because of this Kendall Jenner ad, you know? Not true. (laughs) I did this weekend. We went out to a restaurant, and I was like, I'll have a Coke. And they're like, is Pepsi all right? And I looked over at John, and I go, Pepsi would be wonderful, actually, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I want to join the conversation. We're going to see Ralph Lauren releasing, like, an all-black line of clothes. It's going to be their anti-fall line because that's what's, you know, trending on on Twitter right now. Yeah, But I did see, actually, some uh, poll numbers that showed that the ad was widely panned by many, many people, but white people hated it way more than brown people. Brown people were like, it's fine. I'm okay with it. Something like 44% of, uh, like people of color responded positively to that. Or neutral. It's below 50, but yeah, it was like in the thirties, uh, for whites. So it is showing that clearly I'm not the target demo, (laughs) but Chuck, I guess it worked on you. Hey man, you're just a Pepsi only now, right? You know, I'm not Pepsi only, but I'm willing to give them a chance. <laughs> See, I'm curious here because did they do what I want is a, a breakdown like the nation did and have the white people who responded negatively to the ad also answer these questions because I'd bet that there's oh, at least an even yes. split between the people who didn't like it because it wasn't woke and the people who didn't like it because it positively portrayed things like Black Lives Matter yeah. and the resistance. <laughs> right. There's the bell curve in there. <laughs> oh, man. I feel like I should be going back to school for statistics or something because it sounded <laughs> fun again, you know? <laughs> but so to close it out here, one thing that I want to circle back to is that this survey and all this data shows that people with racial resentments or racial fears are turning to support Trump. That they were actually an important 
demographic, like an ideological demographic that we need to consider and stop trying to write off with these excuses about right. democratic identity politics or economic anxiety or whatever. But how often do you hear these two statements in the media, basically? More immigrants, too many demands on government services, and not enough jobs. Immigrants are stealing <laughs> sure. our jobs. You hear that nonstop, right? How right. often do you hear anyone talk about well, Americans will learn more and be enriched by being never. different cultures? Yeah. Or a diverse workforce will lead to more economic mm. growth. That's You hear that a little bit because you hear farmers that say, look, we tried giving these jobs out to people that are here in the U.S. and they just refused to do them. Yeah. So, I mean, in that regard, you hear about the diverse workforce. Here's, yeah, here's my favorite immigrant diverse workforce economic growth story. Lay it on us, we man. Need a better, we need a better catchphrase for that one. <laughs> uh, that's the problem. And a jingle. <laughs> Frito-Lay, maker of Cheetos had a dude who worked for them, was a janitor, and had an idea one day, got him to give him some, like, Cheetos, or they were like, these Cheetos don't have flavor dust on them or whatever, so you can just, you just take them home if you want them. We're just mm-hmm. giving them away. And so he took them home, the blank Cheetos, and he put the stuff that they serve street corn, the mm-hmm. spices oh, yeah, from street sure. corn oh, on yeah. it. And he took it back in, and he was like, I think you guys should make this. I think it would be really popular. And he invented Flaming Hot Cheetos. Wow. And yeah. he was a janitor at Frito-Lay. Mm-hmm. And now he's like a VP of marketing. That's because awesome. Because Flaming Hot Cheetos are the number one selling product in Frito-Lay history. See, that's an American dream type story, you know, where you can work from your way from the bottom and get recognized for your innovation and move to the top. But there needs to be more of that. I, in, in fact, Brendan, I don't even believe it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Fake news. <laughs> that, that Horatio Alger, you know, pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps, which, by the way, like, that whole phrase came about as an impossibility, that you're not supposed to, that it's impossible to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And now we hear people use it unironically completely wrong, completely the opposite. As a truism, of- right? It's just like, this is just intuitive. <laughs> you got to right. do it. Yep. Of course. It's so easy. Well, that's because those are the kind of people that just peel the stickers off the Rubik's Cube and put them all on <laughs> in the same spot and then told people they have to go. That's American that. innovation. So, yeah. But no, yeah. Brendan, I, I think so. your anecdote fits what we've been saying for months now, which is, you know, what we need is we, we can't just say, like, why being leftist or why voting Democrat is better as a reaction to another narrative like there has to be a compelling narrative that we're selling also one that convinces people you tell them that you know you're a citizen of the society that means you're entitled to not going bankrupt if a kid gets sick or something like that you know instead of just saying like look they're going to take your whatever major health care you have away from i think that, that the heart of my philosophy is much more libertarianism than uh, then, uh, well, that's the fashionable word these days, I guess. Liber- a conservative is no longer just that. He's a libertarian. Well, always has been. Because I- how do we call a liberal? You know, someone very profoundly once said many years ago that if fascism ever comes to America, it'll come in the name of, li- of liberalism. And what is fascism? Fascism is private ownership, private enterprise, but total government control and regulation. Well, isn't this the liberal philosophy? The conservative, so-called, is the one that says, less government, get off my back, get out of my pocket, and let me have more control of my own destiny. 
if fascism ever comes to America, it'll come in the name of liberalism. 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 Yeah, I think that's our segue. I think that's the segue into this jackass. So, Boom. Yeah, so we're going to we're gonna introduce a new device on the show tonight. Uh, we're calling this the Liquid Flannel Roundtable, where we, we share a little piece of, of reading with you, the listener, and... You know, give our give our commentary and our our supportive um, you know thoughts on this article. And tonight we are going to be uh, covering this article that ran in the Wall Street Journal. And I will say, I'm going to start interrupting you before you even start reading this shit. That's fine. Because... That's fine. We actually agreed to this before we started <laughs> that I could be interrupted at any time. Well, I'm invoking it because I want to say, reading this article, it made me think that this uh, segment of the show should just be called the stall because this is literally where we just shit on an object <laughs> usually a journalist usually someone that is posing horribly not that not that we're trying to editorialize our opinion of the of this piece hey, here but um, you got a pulitzer in editorial so we gotta cut our chops yeah no that's right let's do it all right so welcoming to the show in in my voice but in his words Brett Stevens of the Wall Street Journal with his incredibly hot take, Islam and the Radical West, subtitle, The Political Orthodoxy of the Left is the Gateway Drug to Jihad. Ugh. Oh my God. So to set this up, why should anyone care about this dude? But so he used to write editorials for the Wall Street Journal, and he was just recently mm-hmm. hired by the new york times the new york times joining the new york times editorial board the gray lady has has picked up um just one of the weirdest whitest wonkiest wankers that leftist propaganda that ever wanked new york times (laughs) yeah so a little so a little a little background here on brett stevens um the new york times has come under fire for adding him to the editorial board because He's got articles from the Wall Street Journal uh, that call people who believe in climate change and want something done about it cultists, said that they're, they're like, uh, you know, Soviet, communist, anti-Semites. Um, he's also, between that article and another one, I don't know if he's just opportunizing or if he doesn't have a coherent moral philosophy, but... Uh, was also casting doubt on accounts from the Holocaust. So yeah, this is this is a real get for the <laughs> New York Times. Only yeah, he that unique commentary that only this Pulitzer Prize winning mm-hmm. columnist and any you know drunk uh, MAGA fan on Twitter <laughs> right. can provide. Seriously. Right, but he wears a collar. <laughs> so. And, you know, if, if anyone's curious about how the New York Times is responding to the backlash of the hiring of Brett Stevens, um, their their quote was, millions agree with him. Hey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's probably true. And when they were like, I don't know if that's... Millions agree right. with marijuana, so <laughs> right. are we going to just bring on Snoop Dogg to the editorial board? Right. <laughs> you we're know? like, so. you know, here's our new article about the heroin crisis. Like, lots of people are doing it. It must be pretty cool. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, man. Sorry. I peeked out that shit. <laughs> All right. All right, so... So our, for our first uh, liquid flannel roundtable, I'm just going to lead us in here with Islam and the Radical West by Brett Stevens in the Wall Street Journal. 
Years ago, I had a chat with three young Muslim men as we waited in a Heathrow airport lounge to board a flight to Islamabad. I was going to Pakistan to report on the fallout from a devastating earthquake in Kashmir. They were going there to do what they vaguely described as charitable work. They dressed in white shalwar kameez, wore their beards in Salafist style, and spoke in South London right. accents. So he just says, oh, I, I had a chat with them. Can you imagine his pickup line on this one, dude? <laughs> he just walks over like, hey, I hear you guys are radical leftist Muslims. Care to comment? Do you have the score of the Arsenal game, mate? <laughs> that probably sounded more Australian. Keep going, sorry. <laughs> also, is our beards? I mean, can you call a thing a Salafist style? He can. I mean, he's an expert. Isn't in that just beards? Obviously. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I'm sure he would agree with people calling Richard Spencer's haircut the, you know, like the alt right haircut right now. <laughs> right. Um, true. True. All right. So, I tried to steer the conversation to the earthquake. They wanted to talk about politics. <laughs> Had I seen writer? That's your job. You're gonna say like, oh, some random Muslims just—they just want. I—I I was like, right. I hate talking about politics, but <laughs> these guys just pressed me. Right. All right. Well, and, and this—this is this is kind of interesting. Um, you know, the, I mean, this is a timely reference that he makes for this article that just came out a couple days ago. Had I seen Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9/11? <laughs> hey, have you? I avoid. Hey, American, have you seen Steamboat Willie? <laughs> you know? I avoided furnishing an opinion about a film they plainly revered. The unvarnished truth about America, and he spells it with a K, from an American. Authority and authenticity rolled into one. I think of that exchange whenever the subject of Islamist radicalization Which comes up. Which is just up. constantly There's a when great deal around. I guarantee it. Somehow, people just want to talk about it. He doesn't want to, but they just talk about it to him. Right. Yeah, he, he sits down in a, a bathroom in a restaurant, and he's seeing um, Islamist uh, symbology, like, in the wallpaper, <laughs> the, in, the, in the weave it's of the everywhere. toilet paper. <laughs> There's a great deal of literature about how young Muslim men, often born in the West to middle class and not particularly religious households, get turned on to jihad. Think Muhammad Mwazi, the University of Westminster graduate later known as Jihadi John. Or Major Nidal Malik Hassan of Fort Hood Infamy. Or Najim Larouki, who studied electrical engineering at the prestigious Catholic University of Louvain before blowing himself up last month in Brussels. Or Boston's Sarnayev brothers and San Bernardino's Syed Farouk. Who studied... It's a long list. Who studied at... I just want to say Sarnayev brothers studied at like a boxing academy, and then, like, a community college. <laughs> Funny that he doesn't right. list that there, yeah. so. <laughs> and, I mean, all of those people, I mean, clearly just uh, liberal icons, all those people who go <laughs> and, like, join the military. Well, hold on, because he hasn't, he, hasn't, he hasn't dropped the bomb okay, on us yet. Okay, drop the you bomb. Know, the, listeners, the listeners don't know where he's headed <laughs> okay. with all Okay, of take us on the ride. Right. <laughs> all right. It's a long list. And in many cases, investigators are able to identify an agent of radicalization. Major Hassan corresponded with extremist cleric Anwar al-Awlaki. Laruki seems to have come under the spell of a Mullin Beek preacher called Khalid Zerkani. The Sarneos took their bomb-building tips from Inspire, an online English-language magazine published by Al-Qaeda's branch in Yemen. But the influence of the al on the world can't fully account for the mindset of these jihadists. 
they are also sons of the West, educated in the schools of multiculturalism, reared on the works of Noam Chomsky, and perhaps France Fanon, consumer of a news diet heavy with reports of perfidy by American or British or Israeli soldiers. If Islamism is their ideological drug of choice, the political orthodoxies of the modern left are the gateway to it. I love <laughs> and this is, this is, now we're into the, this is the meat of this article I mean, here. I love how this dude is going to have a critique of the liberal, quote, higher education system while throwing in perfidy into the middle of his <laughs> sentence. Right. Like, I guess when you feel when you when your mindset is that liberal liberals in colleges have gone too far and they're ruining america and then you just have to then your your mind goes well why and you just you just grasp for straws until you just grab the worst thing you can think of i guess <laughs> because his his argument just makes absolutely no sense to me at all like multiculturalism will clearly then the next step is isis it's like right. Right. What? Yeah, okay, so he so he fleshes this out a little bit. Take the most recent issue of Inspire. This is the, the Al-Qaeda English language magazine. Mixed in with step-by-step photos on how to build a timed hand grenade and an analysis of the Charlie Hebdo massacre, there's a long article on the oppression of blacks in America, starting with the killing of Ferguson's Michael Brown. The spring 2013 issue contains a, quote, message to the American nation, end quote, from Al-Qaeda... Com- commander Kasim Arini, in which he asked whether, quote, meddling in our affairs and installing whomever tyrant agents and lackeys you want who kill and oppress is forgivable. Okay, so basically what he's saying is that anybody who promotes any kind of anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist message are basically creating terrorists. Right, right. because, because some terrorists in between their magazine on how to make bombs also write like we hate america because they keep coming over to our country and dropping bombs on us right right so right anybody who just thinks like well maybe we should stop dropping all the bombs because it doesn't really seem to do anything is now somehow Mm. well you're on the side of the terrorists because you know who else doesn't want to get bombs dropped on them terrorists but prop, but props <laughs> to Inspire for being totally woke AF. You know, I'm just, <laughs> right. like, I mean, talking about you know right. the oppression of blacks in America and Ferguson's right. Michael Brown. Because all these leftist <laughs> liberal college educated people just hop on the internet, and they're like, "Whoa, dude, did you see ISIS this week? Did you see this month's yeah. ISIS magazine? Those dudes are so woke about <laughs> Ferguson. Yeah, man. ISIS is so the progressive leftist future of the world. I'm pretty like, sure I'm going to uh, donate to their Patreon. So, <laughs> I mean, it's it's clear that even if they put this stuff into their publications, it's just to basically say, like, look, America's bad, right? Right. No matter. Yeah, this is an extra way right. that America is. They're, yeah. they're not saying, like, and we stand on the side of Black Lives Matter because no. we believe in racial equality for among all. We're no. ISIS. No. Right. No, no, they're not doing that. <laughs> they're not winning people over with that argument because that's not an argument that they're even making at all. No. Yeah, no, that that's right, Brennan. And actually, that reminds me, as a quick aside, I watched a great video that I'm going to make sure I'll post on the on the Twitter this weekend about propaganda and how it's not sufficient to look at the specific 
content of the language when someone's propagandizing you also have to look of you have to look at the effect of it mm-hmm. and so the this video is using as examples some you know popular whatever race realist or white supremacist you know outwardly white supremacist views and the these talking points that they have things about you know IQ tests and you know look at the look at the crime data between uh, black people and white people in America that it's not enough to just look at whether what they're saying is true you also have to look at the effect that that has on the listener and when it comes to an article published or a copy pasta from Stormfront that makes its way onto Reddit or something it's not trying really to convince anybody of you know the the meat of the argument what it's trying to do is draw people in who are already on your side and just com- continue to cement their perspective on things so i think you're totally yeah. right that you know if if the if al-qaeda is talking about black lives matter it's not because they're hashtag woke it's because it's just another way to make american imperialism you know the the american devil look it's worse. a page i mean the russians did the exact same thing during the civil rights movement there's tons of great russian propaganda art about how horrible america is for how they're treating black people and again just like you had alluded to it's not because they cared about black people's right to exist or anything like that it's right. just to right. highlight the ideological failures of their enemy so yeah well and that's true and at least the soviet union in some senses pretended to be you know racially or religiously egalitarian racially more so than religiously because basically all religion was banned so everyone got treated exactly equally <laughs> yeah you know? but uh you know but it, it, there's there's a uh, i'm not to like slap my fallacy card down on the board because um, I can't remember the name of it but there is a you know there's a, a logical fallacy that's basically like a bad actor pointing out a failing of somebody else shouldn't be discounted just because it's a bad actor saying it mm-hmm. you know if there's actually I mean it's it's basically the the ad hominem argument right. uh, the, the ad hominem argument or poisoning the well mm-hmm. where you say like just because ISIS is talking about Black Lives Matter, therefore Black Lives Matter is a bad thing. They're linked to terror. I can't. <laughs> yeah. So 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 Brett Stevens, who has a PhD in hashtag woke here, says this isn't the language of Islam with its impressive tradition of conquest. It's the language of the progressive left, of what Gene Kirkpatrick at the 1984 Republican convention called the "Blame America First" crowd. <laughs> It fits the left's view of the West as the perennial sinner and the rest of the world as its perpetual victim. It is the language of turning the page on a decade of war, of focusing on nation building at home. It strikes us as radical. Oh, you yeah. know what it's the language of? It's the language of Jesus because in the Bible, he literally <laughs> talked right. about the sawdust in one person's eye. You know, remove the plank out of your eye before you comment about the sawdust. I mean, these people right. lose their religion faster than REM when it comes to talking about this moral <laughs> failing bullshit of the liberals, man. Well, and it's also it's also what Trump ran and won on, right? Of like, I'm not going to go to war in the Middle East. Now, of course, he immediately reversed himself as soon as he got into office. But that's what his voters sure. wanted, right? Is to say, stop wasting money overseas 
spend money on stop wasting America. money and stop wasting American right. lives. Yes. America first. Sure. America first. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and simultaneously, you've got you know the left, the the anti-war left, saying this never gets better if we just start dropping bombs on Syria or uh, Libya. The lives of the people there don't get better because we're really good at taking out like a terrorist cell, but we're terrible at doing nation building. So what we end up doing, you know, and we've done it in the Middle East for the past 15 years, and we did it in Central America for three or four decades, uh, is to just keep creating power vacuums, keep making people's lives more violent and shorter. And of course that radicalizes people. And the left's been saying that for forever. Right. Well, and so this guy in his article attacks like, oh, uh, it's like all just like ISIS, the left wants America to stop bombing the Middle East all the time. But it's like, well, we've literally been in war in Afghanistan for over 16 years, and Trump just dropped the biggest bomb in, like, the history of bombs on Afghanistan in year (laughs) 16. It's like, you really think more bigger bombs is going to change anything? Like, that's the whole problem in Afghanistan. That's why it took us 16 years and we couldn't stop going to war there. Just the bombs were just too small. Once we start using the big bombs, you know, then it's going to just yeah. turn itself around. It's nonsense. Yeah, no, that's that's right. And somebody posted on Twitter that, you know, the cost of that one bomb was enough to keep what the federal government puts into Meals on Wheels every year going for like the next five or six years or like two trips to florida for trump or whatever and golf golf cart (laughs) rental fees (laughs) (laughs) no no i I mean i I see your point but that was an expensive bomb is the point like it what's it cost us like three million dollars every time he goes to mar-a-lago for a golfing weekend they've had the bomb for over 12 years it's been tested yeah and so previously they had said like how come you don't use the giant bomb that you guys invented? And they're like, oh, well, because it costs like a gajillion dollars. And, and you, yeah. you drop it and you <laughs> kill like 30 dudes. Like, we could do that with normal bombs that cost one-tenth of, of what this does. And you're achieving mm-hmm. the same effect. But Trump doesn't care about with that at all. With more efficiency, you know? too, because this thing had like a mile blast radius or whatever. <laughs> right. So. You really can't right. control what you're hitting. But, you know, once we just drop the biggest bomb ever, then everyone will in Afghanistan will see, like, oh, America's the good guys. Because yep. did, did, didn't you see the, they just dropped the biggest didn't you, bomb did, ever? Did you see the giant bomb? That they dropped yeah. on our country? <laughs> yeah. Clearly. They're taking this seriously like, now, finally. Cle- clearly these ISIS guys <laughs> saying that America's yeah. bad don't right. know what they're talking about. It's like, I saw it, which means I'm deaf now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You got yeah, it, the like the deaf 14-year-old is going to look at that and go like the explosion was really good cuz I definitely associate explosions with the good guy yeah. at this point. All right. So, yeah, to to go back into this article, we're almost done here, which is a good thing. But I mean, he just he doesn't let up on this point that having some sort of anti-war ethic uh is or anti-imperialism, anti American cultural and capitalist hegemony perspective on things is what's creating jihadis. Going on here, he says, this this kind of article strikes us as radical only because it comes from the pen of a terrorist. If it had appeared as an op-ed in The Guardian, it would elicit nodding approval from many readers, a, dimis- a dismissive shrug from others, but no big whoop either way. In the early 1900s, my former columnist 1990s. colleague Thomas Frank... <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh... 
you know, it's 1990s, it's Fahrenheit 9-11. Like, I think that he hasn't been outside of just his little Twitter sphere for the last 10, 10 years, you know. In the early 1990s, my former columnist colleague, Thomas Frank, came up with the clever phrase, commodification of dissent, to explain how capitalism turned all kinds of countercultural beliefs and radical ideas into just another product in a box, to be sold and distributed through the usual channels. Fahrenheit 9-11 might have been a political revelation, or even a call to arms for some impressionable young Muslims from Tower Hamlets, but to Hollywood, it was a $222.5 million box office gold. <laughs> that made it a winner in the marketplace of ideas, and who can quarrel with that? Okay, he's also... This is also an argument that the left makes. I mean, we had Peter Coffin on the show two weeks ago, and this is exactly what he focuses on, which is, you know, turning leftist uh, resistance to American imperialism into a lifestyle marketing campaign. And I agree with him on that, and that's why the Pepsi commercial got so much backlash uh, from from the left. But, I mean, I don't know how this feeds into... But, I, I mean, I also think it's, it's completely ridiculous that he could say Fahrenheit 9-11 was a call to arms for young Muslims. Where right. it was literally <laughs> just... A war, a, a movie about how after 9-11 happened, George Bush went to war in Iraq and it was a terrible idea. And now literally everybody agrees with that premise. So what is this guy's problem with it, right? What, what does he want to say, right? Because someone had the audacity to say maybe the Iraq war was a bad idea, we're just feeding into jihadism. Like... No, As that's that's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's if we all just said like, no, it was the best idea ever. Like, right. Like, <laughs> how would that have changed anything? It's absolute status quo defense, where basically, you know, anybody who's critical of what's going on right now is essentially the same thing. And in fact, you know, the people who think they're doing it for good reasons are feeding into the people who we think are doing it for bad reasons. Right. But anyway, yeah, this is this is what I was trying to say is that. Instead of looking at, he, he looks at the movie that was made about the horrible decision to go into Iraq and then looks at the radicalization of people who were in Iraq and people who were in America who sympathized with Iraq and said, it must be the movie's fault, right? Instead of saying like, <laughs> no, it was why they made the, what they made the movie about. Right. That's the right. problem, right? But he's fully in support of that. It just... The leaps in logic here—they never go far are enough. Just back. mind blowing. No, exactly. It's it's also the only thing the two perspectives have in common. You know, I mean, right. essentially, what he's saying here is that Michael Moore and Noam Chomsky support Salafist, traditionalist, violent Islamism, which couldn't be <laughs> which further is from the truth. Right. <laughs> so, so he so he brings it home. I've skipped a couple of paragraphs here, but he brings it home um, with. The last graph here, the first line of it really should have been the, the yes. subtitle for this article. We've become lazy in our thinking about Islam. That's Clearly. the only thing like, I could agree with this bastard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like a self-referential conclusion on this article. Yeah, yeah so, he, so he brings it home here with this, this last line that's, whether the Islam practiced by Al-Qaeda or ISIS is radical or merely traditional isn't the question. It's whether the West can recognize that the moral nihilism of today's jihadi johns 
is the logical outgrowth of the moral relativism that is the default religion of today's West. Moral relativism is not the default religion of the West, okay? <laughs> right, I mean, can we, call, can, can we call a pretty firm and justified belief that American exceptionalism and manifest destiny and nation building, like, that's moral relativism? That's, that seems like a pretty strong stance to yeah. me. You know, universities are a pretty, well, my university experience was a pretty free exchange of ideas, and it was literally, I was halfway through with undergrad when 9-11 happened. And go to a school that has the largest center for Afghan studies in the country. So, you know, there was a pretty big, diverse segment of, you know, um, people from Islamic countries and everything like that. I think people were able to have good discussions. And honestly, the, the most radical thing someone ever told me was, you know, you're, you think your country is so great, but... If every country had slaves the way your country did, we'd all be like your country. And I was like, oh. And I'm not saying that that's right or wrong or anything, but it actually made me think. And I was like, whoa, this dude actually knows about, you know, the American civil rights to some degree. And I've had great conversations with people, you know, I don't know. Well, that's, that's not that's not even an unreasonable position, right? I mean, we're basically a country built on land that we stole from the indigenous population and then you know got the benefit of an economy that we didn't really have to pay but, for that but much. to brett stevens he would be like this is that blame america first you know that yeah yeah so it's kind of like they're shutting you well, get out. over it it's not my fault i would i would almost rather sit down and have a dialogue with whoever writes it fucking inspire magazine you know on like, John. like i yeah. think i could sit down and have a conversation with him and not want to beat my head in the wall like i would with richard spencer or something you know so i don't know it actually made me feel like um optimism maybe the strategy should be to send uh delegations of color to go do these negotiations <laughs> with the middle east i bet you right. you would find a little bit more empathy in the room <laughs> so right. well and uh, the funny part is that you look at all these conflicts in the middle east and like what's the end game right the end game for the right appears to be well we'll just kill all of them like, right once all the terrorists are dead there won't be any more terrorists and we win yeah and and terrorists and right. muslims being exactly the same thing right. and, and them not realizing yeah. that them killing anyone but not killing everyone creates more terrorists so there this is a never-ending cycle right so, so to right. say like you have to you have to to be able to end a conflict like this you have to be able to sit down and say we're not gonna bomb you anymore if you you know do this go govern yourselves or whatever and yet yeah and then you put a bunch of funding into things like school building and you know you send over uh, you know, civil rights lawyers who can help to create a constitution and, you know, UN inspectors to be there to make sure that you have free elections. I mean, the apparatus is in place for nation building. The U.S. never does it. Right. Because it's, it's, it doesn't sell good on TV like the bombings do, right? Your, your ratings aren't yeah, going exactly. up right. when you're doing the, the hard, long work of, like, we built another, you know, another school and, you know... <laughs> 
that's just not as impactful on that 24-hour news cycle. Right. Yeah, no, that's right. And it's also why people think that we spend like a third of our budget on foreign aid when really it's less than 1%. Yeah. We, we could literally, you know, triple or quadruple the foreign aid budget and we wouldn't be anywhere close to the number that people think we spend. Yeah, we could literally just record another USA for Africa and probably come up with the foreign aid budget. You know, like... <laughs> <laughs> right. There's going to be a Kickstarter for it. You look look out for that. Get Bono on this shit. <laughs> so, man. Okay. Well, I'm clapping. I'm clapping not because Brad Stevens is clever or clapping because I'm laughing at him. I'm clapping because this article is done. So, yeah, thank you, thank you, Brett Stevens, for being the the first target of the liquid flannel roundtable here. Yeah. Um, seriously, keep up the good work at the New York Times because that's going to give us and all of Left Twitter just years of delight yeah. maybe, and material maybe they, to sell to maybe our Maybe they listeners. hired him because they were like, this is just comedy gold. We gotta, get, we gotta lock this down. Yeah. We gotta find some people that say some shit about him and bring them on. Maybe this is bait, so okay. Spread this out with the flannel audience. Anyway, let's take a break here and then come back and uh, dive into a little bit more. So. basically say it's not very dangerous and that young people have a right to participate with it and uh, others older people do too you're going to have more problems wouldn't you agree and i think the drugs today are more powerful they're more addictive and they can destroy even more lives young people uh have their lives destroyed i as you know am dubious about marijuana as states I get can pass whatever laws they choose but I'm not sure we're going to be a better healthier nation that if uh, we have uh, marijuana being sold at every corner grocery store I mean we need grown-ups in charge in Washington to say marijuana is not the kind of thing that ought to be legalized it ought not to be uh, uh, minimized that it's in fact a very real danger I can't tell you how concerning it is for me emotionally and personally to see the possibility that we would reverse the progress that we've made and let it slip away from us. Lives will be impacted, families will be broken up, children will be damaged because of the difficulties their parents have, and people may be psychologically impacted the rest of their lives. We have too much of a tolerance for drug use. Psychologically, politically, morally, we need to say, as Nancy Reagan said, just say no, don't do it. There's no excuse for this. It's not recreational. That these, this drug is dangerous. You cannot play with it. It's not funny. It's not something to laugh about. And, and trying to send that message with clarity that good people don't smoke marijuana. 
Yeah, so we've all got a few high notes here, a couple things that we wanted to get in the episode, so let's just kind of go around the table and get them out in the open. So for my high note this week, uh, I want to talk about something that sounds sad, but it's not. World's oldest person, Emma Morano, dies at the age of 117. Dang. Mm. So she's an Italian lady. And she attributed her longevity to eating three eggs a day, two of them raw. Oh. Oh. Also, she said she hates fruits and vegetables. Oh, wow. (laughs) She lived to 117 not eating fruits and vegetables or just hating them. Maybe she ate them and hate them. Yeah. I mean, she just ate eggs. Just eggs? (laughs) That's what she says. Two eggs a day and some biscuits, which means cookies in, in British. Oh, man. So uh, this is the. This well, it may, is not, the may not mean cookies in Italian though. I'm not sure what kind of. No, well, it's, it's a B, it's a BBC story. Right, so, right. <laughs> uh, you know, they were like, "Oh, tell us about your life or whatever." And she's like, "Well, another thing that helped me live so long was how I kicked out my husband in 1938." <laughs> oh um, snap, dude! And she's like, "The marriage had never been healthy. I was in love with a boy who was killed during World War One." Wow. Oh, no. And had no interest in marrying anyone else. But a guy told me, marry me or I'll kill you when I was 26. <laughs> so I got married to him. Dude, holy shit. <laughs> marry she, me or I'll kill she, you. They separated in 1938, but remained married until he died in 1978. And as, wow. as a 75-year-old decided that maybe she was just done with this whole marriage thing. Yeah. <laughs> So since at 1978, Man. she was like, "Finally, now I can get on with my life." <laughs> I like, I like the strategy. I I hate the strategy of the dude, but I like the idea that if you threaten somebody right away, there's nowhere to go in the relationship but up. I mean, because you can be like, "Man, you saw me. You've seen me at my worst." So you know, it's not going to get worse than that. So not promising that it's not going to continue at this level of bad, but right, we have nowhere to go but up. <laughs> oh man! So that was that was an amazing story. Now the oldest lady is uh, she's in Jamaica, Jamaica or Kenya, Jamaica. Where <laughs> uh, there, she's like, there's another lady who's oh. the third in line is in Kenya. Right oh, now. okay. Well, and it's so, it's uh, always it's always women. I think it's important to point that out that it's always women who are the the oldest people on earth. So, is that a picture of the lady in Jamaica there? That's the Kenya lady. Oh, that's the Kenya lady. Okay, interesting. Wow. But yeah, she this late um the original lady was the last person alive who was born in the 1800s. So now there's no one alive that was born in the 1800s anymore. Wow. wow. She was born in 1899. 90s kid, only 90s kids will get this one. Uh, so everyone left as 20th century D bags and the, the century. worst of all of the centuries too. None of the real Americans. Uh, when it started Italians, to go really mind. downhill. Uh, well, hats off to Emma Murano. That's great. That's right. I'm gonna pour a sip on the concrete for her. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, my high note story comes from Fusion, and it's uh, America's favorite, you know, per- internet personality, Alex Jones. Um, oh, I yeah, Doctor Doc, uh, Alex Jones. He's he's come up on the show news before. Huckster conspiracy compatriot. I don't know yeah. what you want to call. And him. very brave alternative journalist. I'll add. Oh, 
<laughs> well, you know, he's got a brave strategy right now, but it's not for his journalism. It's for his <laughs> upcoming custody battle. Uh. And his defense is that essentially he's a fake. And what it's basically trying to defend is an argument from the children's mother, Kelly Jones, Alex's ex, who believes that not only that he's a bad parent, but also that he poses a risk or a threat to their three children. Wait, you mean the guy who just screams incoherently about conspiracy theories and about how, like, the Sandy Hook massacre was uh, a big ploy to... Uh, right, like for Obama to steal your guns and tears his shirt off and ripping pretends... his shirt off. Yeah. yeah, the guy who we literally talked uh, last week about how he literally threatened the life of the guy in charge of the Russia Adam Schiff <laughs> investigation. Yeah, yeah so you, oh, you're, yeah. you're telling me that, and that... she mentions this. You know, she mentions all of this. Right. Yeah, in the in the court uh, hearing to say like clearly he's not a fit parent. Right, and so his his lawyer's argument is essentially that. This is performance art, which cracks me up because I don't know. He, his performance it's like art. Stephen Colbert. He's yeah. taken it to the next oh, level. Oh, and to the love made that argument too. You know, someone on Twitter popped up like, "Can somebody please explain to me the difference between Alex Jones and John Stewart?" And it's like, well, a John Stewart's funny. Uh, B John Stewart right. never got somebody's Caused life threatened with a go... gun at a pizza restaurant yes. in D.C. Right. Well, and they go, the the lawyer also said, evaluating Alex Jones based on InfoWars or using InfoWars to judge Alex Jones would be like evaluating Jack Nicholson based on his interpretation of the Joker in Batman, the statesman <laughs> writes. You know, the thing is, one of his children, he brings in the studio and, you know, integrates him into the show and says that this kid is going to be the next one to carry the torch. So... I guess if Jack Nicholas was like painting his kids' faces like the Joker, and you <laughs> right. know, like if, putting the lipstick right. on them, that the, might be a cause to evaluate him on that. Well, and the also Joker Jack Nicholson like breaks character. Right. You know, right? Like Jack Nicholson yeah. doesn't act like the Joker when he's out in regular life. Like you see Alex Jones, you know, he'll he'll just be on the street, or you know, he does a periscope, or somebody catches him. Um, wandering around the city, and he's exactly the same guy when he's out in public that he is when he's on his show. It's not a character he's putting on. That's just Alex Jones. It's him losing his mind all the time. Yeah, so, you know, he's in this custody battle. I think Bill O'Reilly was in a custody battle. What always cracks me up is these guys always seem to be on the side of family values, and then you hear this kind of nonsense. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I mean, um, Mike Cernovich, who had a little, uh, or I guess it's it's Cernovich. <laughs> it, it confirmed Cernovich, you know. Like, that guy collects Call it alimony while he also rails against, you know, how family court is terrible for men. Yeah. Oh, it, he's getting paid? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. He, he collects, <laughs> oh, yeah. He collects <laughs> alimony from his ex-wife. Hey, man, just like Trump, you got to know the system to beat it or whatever right only That's he can right. fix it because he knows it so well right but that video of him that you sent out getting quote-unquote assaulted at a rally was hilarious <laughs> <laughs> so. yeah mike cernovich uh goes up on a, a stage in front of uh it was one of the tax rallies i think and starts yelling into the microphone bill clinton should have been impeached bill clinton should... i i don't know where he was going with that like nobody's talking yeah. about bill clinton anymore um but 
a bunch of people gather up around him and they're all yelling, you know, show your taxes now, show your taxes now. And he's on his periscope, you know, fake shaking his cell phone camera to make it and going, I'm being assaulted, I'm being assaulted. And, you know, somebody else found a video of it from a distance and it's just him standing in a group of people who are all kind of being noisy around him i thought that the gorilla mindset was just gonna kick in some of that steroid rage or whatever he's (laughs) taking the nootropic stack yeah it might be it might be his nootropic stack was causing him to hallucinate that he was under assault or something it really just activates the tattletale syndrome in you so he's touching me you know and and tattletale mentality is is really big amongst the great apes you know so that actually maybe it is the gorilla mindset yeah (laughs) so there we go that's that's what i got what do you got matt yeah so my my high note is this tweet that I saw about the the new Star Wars Episode Eight, The Last Jedi, coming out. This tweet, there is a screenshot of somebody else's tweet, and said, can't wait to see hashtag The Last Jedi. Better not be any gay kiss scenes, though, as rumored by some on the web. No more Hollywood propaganda! And I got curious, and what's this all about? And it turns out that there have been some whispers going around that there is a gay relationship, a gay romance, between Finn, who's played by John Boyega, and Oscar Isaac, who plays Poe, which, if anyone saw episode 7, it seems like that might actually work out. I don't know, they're both beautiful men, and, you know, have come through adversity together. That's that's a good love story. And J.J. Uh, Abram gave this super vague statement when questioned about these rumors saying like, look, you know, Star Wars is all about inclusivity. Like the good guys are the, you know, the, the party of inclusivity. So I'm not ruling it out. And meanwhile, meanwhile, Oscar Isaac has said, you know, I've been doing some romance scenes, uh, like in the cockpit, um, which is also an unfortunate pun or maybe an intentional (laughs) one. (laughs) But I think, if the alternative is that they just redo kind of like the love triangle from the original trilogy where it's like the girl and then like the Han Solo guy and the the other guy, you know, <laughs> who is who's going to get the girl or like if the twist is like, nope, those two dudes end up together and the girl goes and does her own thing. Like <laughs> I, I would welcome that as a refreshing change of pace yeah absolutely because right. you know i i like forced yeah. romance i liked the force that's awakens. The real propaganda <laughs> <laughs> i liked the force awakens but it was in many cases kind of a shot for shot remake of episode four and yeah i would i would love it if they took it off in some new experience it's not even an experimental direction it would just be experimental for star wars but you know i mm. like that idea that the the good guys in star wars are all about inclusivity why wouldn't there be gay people um, but I think the thing that really cracks me up is, you know, this this angry tweet that starts off with, can't wait to see it. You know, these it's it's the same, you know, it's the, like, identity right. politics warriors, the status quo warriors on Twitter and on Reddit who are talking about, you know, it's the same people who, it's the gamer gators, it's people talking about how these SJW developers and producers are trying to shoehorn their inclusivity and multiculturalism into this media but they won't stop watching it, you know? Right. They they yeah. still want to, you know, they want to buy the video game. They want to go and see the Star Wars movie when it comes out on opening night. They're just going to be pissed about it because it doesn't exactly represent them as white men anymore. 
Well, and you can, I could just imagine this guy before episode seven come out saying like, oh, of course they're putting black people in it now. Right. Like, pfft, it's come on. Everyone knows in the space future, there's only white people. Right. You know, <laughs> duh. Yeah, this, it's Except only white Lando, people Lando. plus, right. plus Lando, <laughs> right. who is basically a criminal and a, like a Judas character for half the time yep. he's on screen. Well, yeah, you can tell because right. he's black. But that's literally, I mean, <laughs> right. it's so it's so ridiculous that people come out and make these arguments to say, "Oh, I'm so sick of there being movies about gay people. Like, when are we going to get straight people movies?" <laughs> As if there's some shortage or that it's like zero sum. Yeah. Well, hold like on. For every even gay more... movie that you make, two straight movies don't get made. Even right. even more fucking ridiculous than that is. This objection seems to come up mostly within the context of fantasy and science fiction. So, I mean, if it turned out that there was a gay Wookiee couple, you know, a species that doesn't exist in the real world, (laughs) nobody would Mm -hmm. have a problem with it. But when you have... Oh, I'm sure they would. people would find a way. Well, some people would, would have a problem with it. I mean, it's the same people who got upset about the absolutely ridiculously overblown quote-unquote gay scene in the recent live-action Beauty and the Beast, which was, like, nothing. Like, you wouldn't necessarily even have noticed it, you know? But they don't have a problem with Belle falling in love with a a buffalo man in, a like, a French uh, restoration suit. (laughs) Well, because the whole town goes after that dude, and they can pretend like he's, like, black. I mean, Buffalo <laughs> right. Soldier, you know, like he, it's a Buffalo Soldier. It's close enough. Let's just burn oh, his dude. house down. Could you imagine if at the end of the at the end of the live action Beauty of the Beast, if he just changed back from the Beast and he was just a black dude and they were like, and they just kill him. Oh, oh, oh wait. Oh, you know, geez. and they, they uh, easily could have done that, too, because the live action Beauty re-beastify and the Beast. Him? The live action Beauty and the Beast acted way more multicultural than the historical era that it was supposed to have been set in. Um, like half the villagers are, are brown or mocha skinned. And right. it's just supposed right. to be like, that's that's how this world exists like that's how colonization is that's you know well no but my point is it wasn't trying to be historically accurate to the region that it was portraying so it was totally i mean it would have been reasonable for the beast to turn back into a prince and instead of the guy that i hated the most from downton abbey right you know it was it was a black (laughs) actor playing him right well it's like it's like the argument where they're like oh to be historically accurate or whatever yeah you know when you look at the original 70s Star Wars, it actually takes place later. There wasn't any black people in it, so there shouldn't be any black people in it uh, ever. Um, <laughs> right. Or, it know, being historically accurate yeah. to a fictional galaxy, you know, right. far, far or, away. Right. You Like, there wasn't any feminism in the 17th century France, so Beauty and the Beast, you know, shouldn't be able to read. Uh, that's just right. feminist propaganda. Well, you they, know, they would have you have like a well and then in the village like there just wasn't enough like piles of human waste and like nobody had <laughs> cholera so right. like what is why is hollywood whitewashing this? right <laughs> i mean they do the same thing with these really superficial things like if a video game decides to update its armor skins for the for the women like if they take out the formed boobs, people are like, "Look, like boob armor. That's historically accurate. Like you can't take that out." It's like, no, that's that's a fake history that you've had fed to you by media. That I mean, that's a terrible, a terrible model for a breastplate. 
you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Your sternum's going to get cracked as soon as you get punched in the chest. Like, it's terrible. Yeah. Like medieval Victoria's Secret shit. Or <laughs> right. <laughs> well, those were some good high notes there. <laughs> so I think that means it's about time to wrap it up. So thank you to everybody. Well, thank you guys for joining us here. And thank you to everybody else listening to the episode. Be sure to uh, follow us on Twitter at liquid underscore flannel. And also like us on iTunes and um, like us and write reviews, man. That helps. Write reviews, uh, constructive criticism, feedback. I don't want constructive criticism. I just want positive feedback, 100% positive. I want you to tell me what it will take for you to share us with your friends and loved ones. All right, yeah. So tell us what that is, and we will do it. (laughs) So, but also you can follow us individually on Twitter. You can find me at Shaggy Two Trope. Brendan, where do they find you? They can find me at Brendan Williams with one L. And Matt, where are you at? I'm at Matt the Great with a W. And thanks again. You've been listening to Liquid Flannel, and we will see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Good stuff. Yeah, no shit. That was a fun episode.